Well, good morning, New Life family. Thank you so much for that uh, incredibly warm welcome. It's a joy and a privilege to be here again um, with some of you and for the first time with many of you. So thank you for having me. Thank you, Pastor Andrew, for that warm welcome. Uh, your pastors have become uh, dear friends of mine. I'm grateful to God for them um, and the privilege of getting a chance to share with you in God's word and join you in your series in 1 John. So if you have your Bibles, would you open them with me to 1 John chapter 3? 1 John chapter 3 is where we will meet this morning, and we will start in verse 11 of 1 John chapter 3. If you have it, say amen. I'm a black preacher, so you talk back to me. It's fine. <laughs> you will not disturb me at all. <laughs> amen, amen, amen. 1 John chapter 3, verse 11. Would you stand with me for, uh, for the reading of God's word, please? And uh, we'll be in 11 to 24 today, but I'm only going to read 11 to 18 just for the sake of time this morning. Would you read with me? For this is the message that you have heard from the beginning, that we should love one another. We should not be like Cain, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. We know that we have passed out of death into life because we, have, we love the brothers. For whoever does not love abides in death. Everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. By this we know love, that he laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. But if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need, yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God shall stand forever. If I may, I would like to tag this text in our exchange more than a feeling, more than a feeling. Would you pray with me? So, Father, uh, we have opened up the scriptures and heard your word, which is your voice speaking to us. And so, God, I ask that you would come now and speak to us through this word uh, and, and through this, your servant. God, I'm asking a couple of things as we sit under your word today, that you would comfort us by it, that you would confront us by it, and that you would conform us into the image of your son through it, by the power of your spirit. And God, I ask by the power of your spirit because I know that there's no uh, effort at volume control or eloquence that will accomplish that among your people. So God, would you come in a demonstration of your spirit and power so that we realize at the end of the day that it does not rest on my ability to speak or our willingness to hear today, but in the power of the spirit to change us and grant faith and grant repentance and shape our heart under this word. And God, as I preach this word today, I ask that the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart would be acceptable in your sight, O oh God, my rock and my redeemer. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. You may be seated in the presence of the Lord. The year was 1994. And the world witnessed one of the most devastating uh, events we've ever seen, uh, this most devastating displays of human brutality that the world has ever seen in the Rwandan genocide. Over about a hundred day period during this genocide, uh, Hutus killed Tutsis at an alarming rate, leaving the death toll somewhere between a half million and a million people, depending on who you, whose stats you quote. And one writer says that we cannot talk about Rwanda without talking about the bodies. 
He says, no other country intervened. Self-interest and self-preservation ruled the day uh, on that. And, and what was even worse about it, if you roll back the clock, it, the, the genocide began on April 7th, which was uh, the week following Easter. Started the Thursday following Easter in a country that was over 85% Christian. Week earlier, Rwandan Christians had gathered together to celebrate Maundy Thursday. Maundy Thursday marks uh, the, the new commandment that Jesus gives us in John chapter 13. It was the night of the washing of the feet and the, the last supper, and Monday just means mandatum, and it comes from the word mandatum in Latin, which just means a command. And here's what Jesus says on that night to his people, his disciples. He says, a new commandment I give you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. And by this, the world will know that you're my disciples if you have love for one another. And one week later, people who named the name of Jesus, this wasn't just people outside of the church. There were Christians who killed other Christians that were in their body because some tribalism took over the place of love in their hearts. Worldliness had taken over in their hearts. One writer says that, that the blood of tribalism ran deeper than the waters of baptism. It's devastating. Devastating to think about that, but I wish that was just the case with their church. In fact, this one writer, Emmanuel Katangale, says that there, what happened in Rwanda is actually a mirror to the church See, over the last several years, I've grieved as we've been broken down as Christians in our tribes and our, and our factions. And despite the fact that Jesus said that the world is going to know us by the way that we love one another, you would think that he had said that the world would know that we're his disciples by the way we hate and slander and gossip and malign one another. And maybe there's some of you here today for whom you say, hey, actually that harm that's been done by the hands of other Christians to me is the reason I don't trust Jesus and I don't trust the church. And if that's you, man, I'm so sorry. And I can tell you this, love is supposed to mark the disciples of Jesus. And sometimes it often does, but my Jesus is still, still very good. And he calls us into a life of love and he welcomes you into that love as well today. And I pray that this body will be the kind of place and continue to be the kind of place that not only says they love Jesus, but models it in love for one another. That's what John's writing about. That's what John's actually writing about at this point in this letter. It's evident in John's writing that his opponents were marked by aberrant teaching and abject lovelessness, and it was causing uncertainty in the churches that John is writing to. And so he's written this letter to give them clarity concerning the character and nature and ethic of the Christian life. And as we look at this text today, this is what I think John wants us to hear today. He wants us to hear that love is the foundation and functional practice of the Christian life. Love is the foundation and the fundamental practice of the Christian life. I, I want to show that to you in this text in three parts, and I'll be out your way this morning. I want to talk first about the diagnostic of love, the diagnostic of love. And second, I want to talk about the practice of love. And then we'll close our time together talking about the assurance of love, the diagnostic, the practice, and the assurance of love. Let's look at this diagnostic work that John gives us today. I grew up in a really small town in East Texas. And uh, when you grow up in a really small town that your parents also grew up in, folks just know you without you knowing them, right? 
And it would all often happen a lot of times where people would walk up to me and be like, you look like you're a key. I am. And you look like you might be Bobby Key's son. I am. You know, you look like your daddy. Yeah, I know I look like my daddy. There's something about me that looks like him. I look like I've been born of him, if, if you will. And it wasn't just that I looked like my dad. My parents were very tight with me and my brother about how we carried ourselves. They would regularly tell us, I don't care how your little friends act out there. This is how we act if we're from this household. There was a look about me and there was a way I carried myself that said, you look like you belong to the key family. John closed the last section of this letter in verse 10 by saying, by this it is evident that we're children of God and who are children of the devil. Whoever does not practice righteousness is not of God, nor is the one who does not love his brother. In other words, John says, you're going to act like and look like your father. You're going to act like and look like your father. And for those who claim the name of Jesus and know God as father, you will walk in righteousness and you will walk in love. The presence or absence of love, John lets us know, is the diagnostic of who you belong to. You could say that it is a spiritual paternity test. I don't need Mari to tell you if if you're born of God or know God. I know that by the way that we love one Another, And that's where he goes in verse 11. This is a message that you've heard from the beginning that we should love one another. These false teachers were teaching another message and attempting to redefine the faith on their own. But by saying from the beginning, what John is saying, hey, go back to the first word you heard about Jesus and what it means to carry yourself in the way of Jesus. And what you will notice in that first word is that we should love one another. John calls him back to the ethic of love. The ethic of love, and this is the first time of six times in this letter that he's going to remind us of our call to love one another as Jesus has called us to. And why does he do that? Well, because our hearts are like a car that's out of alignment. They kind of constantly have to be jerked back into alignment with the way and the word of God. And John shows us why we need that as he moves down in verse 12. Because it's a delineation between who are children of God and who are children of the devil. He says in verse 12, we should not be like Cain, okay, who was of the evil one and murdered his brother. And why did he murder him? Because his own deeds were evil and his brother's righteous. Do not be surprised, brothers, that the world hates you. And if you don't know the story of Cain and Abel, go back to Genesis chapter four. Cain and Abel bring an offering before God. Cain's offering is not accepted. Abel's offering is accepted. And in a fit of jealous rage, Cain murders his brother. He, murdered, he murders his brothers, puts an end to his life. And John, John brings up Cain here because Cain is like, uh, is, is like the devil. Jesus says in John chapter 8 that the devil's been a murderer from the beginning. Cain is like the prototype of those who would walk in the devil's ways in the world around us. He tells him not to be surprised when children of the darkness hate children of the light. That is the way of children of the darkness, by the way. That's what Paul says, before we knew Jesus, here's what Paul says about us in in Titus chapter three, verse three, that we ourselves were once foolish and disobedient and led astray and slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. He said, apart from Jesus, that's what you're like. That's what you're like. So he says, it's not surprising that children of darkness act like this, even those who are in our midst acting like they're among us. He says, it's not surprising that they act like that. What should be surprising 
To go back to the Rwandan example, it's when Christians, people who name the name of Jesus, act like that. What was, the genocide itself was shocking and abhorrent, but what should be even more shocking to us as the people of God is that there were people who named the name of Jesus and walked into their sanctuary with their brothers and sisters and took their lives no longer than a week after we celebrated the great victory over death at Easter. That is not the way things should have been. Now, at this point, you might be sitting there saying, well, Key, I'm not a murderer. Praise God. Praise God. Praise God. That's, that's good news today. But what John goes on to say is that it's not just the activity of murder that marks you out as a child of darkness. It's hatred in your heart. That's the same as murder. Look at verse 15. He says, everyone who hates his brother is a murderer, and you know that no murderer has eternal life abiding in him. What, what John's stressing, is, if, if we have ears to hear him, is that hatred is murder in seed form. Hatred is murder in seed form. It's the last step in the process. One writer says that hatred is the wish that the other person was not there. It's the refusal to recognize his rights as a person, the longing that he might be dead. If I hate somebody, I'm no different from a murderer in my attitude toward them. Hatred, he says, is incompatible with spiritual life. In other words, where you witness lovelessness, it's evident that a person does not or has not known the love of the Father. Now again, at this point, you might be attempting to exonerate yourself further, like, well, I'm not a murderer and I'm not a hateful person. Praise God, praise God for that. But I, I wanna submit to you that we're a little bit more sophisticated than just saying, I hate you. I, 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 can I submit that to you this morning? Can I, can I tell you how that happens this morning? It shows up in lying to one another and in slander and in gossip, and in anger, and in corrupting talk, and in bitterness, and in unforgiveness, and in wrath, and in vengeance, and in anger, and in clamor, all those deeds of darkness that Paul talks about in Ephesians chapter four. It shows up in a bunch of different ways. We're way more sophisticated in the ways that we struggle with sin, right? And where those things are among us, the call of the scriptures is to repent and turn and live as children of the light. It is the presence of love that marks us out as the children of God. Look again at verse 14. He says that we know that we've passed out of death into life because we love the brothers. Whoever does not love abides in death. Now, I love to cook, love to cook. My wife and I both love to cook. I cook the savory things. She cooks the sweet things. When people come over, we've got, it, got the things set up. It's wonderful. My wife is so good at baking cakes that now she doesn't have to stick something into the middle of the cake to tell if it's done. She can just touch the top of the cake, and she knows the cake's done. When, I, when I'm cooking steak now, you don't, you don't stick the probe in it and drain all the juices out of it. You touch it, right? Like, that's medium rare. That's medium that's medium well, this is hot garbage. Um, well done, well done, well done. But, but like, the same is true of the Christian life. Like the same is true of the Christian life. If you touch the Christian life, John's letting us know, and you see love, it's done. That's, that's done right. Jesus has visited that person. 
You see that, and it's been evident throughout the history of the church. The North African church father, Tertullian, said this about the early church. He says, it's mainly the deeds of love, so noble that lead many to put a brand upon us. Look, they say, how the Christians love one another, for they themselves hate one another. And how they're ready to die for each other, for they themselves are ready to kill each other. Family, it was love. It was love that set apart Christians in his day in the Roman world. And family, can I tell you something about our day? It will be love that sets us apart in the middle of the hostility and the self-centeredness and the hatred and tribalism in our day. It is our love, not our doctrinal statements, important though they may be. It is our love, not our buildings or our well-orchestrated worship services. It is our love, not our tightening down on our secondary and tertiary doctrinal issues. It is our love that will mark us out as Jesus' disciples. And it is that love that will help us live into the unity for which Christ died. And it is that love and that unity that testifies to the watching world that Jesus is real and that he's come to transform lives and make us a people who are able to love. Again, family, love is the foundation and the fundamental practice of the Christian life. And it is more than a feeling, more than a feeling. Now, it's almost as if John knows that we're content to leave things in a diagnostic space and leave it in the idea space because he moves on and he talks about the practice of love. Now, we've been talking about love for a little while, and I realize that that's dangerous to talk about love because we've got a lot of definitions kind of floating around, right? A lot of definitions floating around about what love is. Love is love, according to signs in my neighborhood, right? Like, we got a lot of definitions around. And we've got people in, our, in this cultural moment who are trying to redefine the boundaries of what love is and what love looks like. And what's fascinating to me is as they seek to redefine the boundaries of what love is, if you don't accept their new boundaries, things get really unloving very quickly. Very quickly. Here's the danger of talking about love. I, Howard Marshall, says that the word love can have a variety of meanings, and it's necessary to know exactly what any given writer means by it. Most people associate Christianity with the command to love, and so they think that, that's all, that they know all about Christianity when they've understood its teaching in terms of their own concept of love, of their own concept of love. Well, John must have known we were going to fight about words, and John must have known we were going to fight about what love is because John defines what love is in verse 16. He starts off and says, by this we know love, right? That he, the Lord Jesus, laid down his life for us, and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. Clear definition, right? Clear definition. I've said a couple times that love is the foundation and the fundamental practice of the Christian life. In the first half of this verse, John lays out the foundation. The foundation of the Christian life is that Jesus has laid down his life sacrificially for us. John is letting us know that that's the shape of love. It is cruciform. The shape of love is self-sacrificial, and it is cruciform. And he's lining us up with what Jesus and the New Testament authors have said all over the place. Jesus says in John chapter 15, verse 13, that greater love has no man than this, that he lay down his life for his friends. Romans 5, Paul says it this way, and this is wonderful. He says, for one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God shows his love for us in that while we were still sinners, in other words, when you were unlovable, 
When you were unlovable and when you hated God, God demonstrates his love in that Jesus Christ died for us. Love defined by Jesus' saving work on our behalf is self-sacrificial for the good of another. Self-sacrifice for the good of another. Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection is the ultimate revelation of self-sacrificial love that this world has ever seen. And if you're here today and you don't know Jesus, it will not serve you to leave here to go try being more loving because you will find in yourself there's an inability for you to keep being loving. The best thing that you can do today is to look upon the face of Jesus and look upon his demonstration of love and receive that fresh for yourself by faith today. It's a revelation of love for us. It's a revelation and demonstration of love for us. But it's not just meant to be a revelation and a demonstration. God intends for that self-sacrifice to be the example and the measurement by which we view everything else we might consider love. He tells us we know that this is love, but then he goes on and says, by this we show love. We ought to lay down our lives for our brothers. John's a good pastor, though, and he knows that we'll come up with ways to get out of a direct command. <laughs> So it gives us some examples to kind of help us see the point in verse 17. He says, if anyone has the world's goods and sees his brother in need and yet closes his heart against him, how does God's love abide in him? Little children, let us not love in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. John paints a picture for us that one writer says puts us in a position of inescapable responsibility inescapable responsibility. And this inescapable responsibility requires an immediate readiness. He knows that we're comfortable with the idea of love. The activity is the difficult part, right? That's the difficult part for us. And we, we might agree, agree even that, yes, we should be self-sacrificial. We should be. I just don't want to be the one to pay the sacrifice, right? We're so self-centered, family, at times that we don't even have space within ourselves to consider and move toward the needs of other people. Or we love the world and the things we've gathered so much that we say things like, man, if I give this, give this away or serve in this way, I'll miss out on fill in the blank. And man, I've worked so hard to get this money, to save for this, to get this weekend and this time for myself. I don't wanna give that away. Or we do things like the lawyer in Luke chapter 10 and say, well, but Jesus, I know I'm supposed to love my neighbor, but who's my neighbor? Who is my neighbor, really? Jesus. And so Jesus tells the story of the Good Samaritan. If you, if you don't know the story, he tells the story of a man who fell among robbers on his way to Jericho, and, and he's beaten and left for dead and robbed, and a priest shows up. The man of God shows up. The people of God are here, all right? We got, a, got relief coming, and the priest says, oh, not today. Passes by on the other side. Levite comes along, okay, man of God, man of God, we're, we're good here. One of the worship leaders is here. Ah, not today, he says. And so a Samaritan, that half-breed, the people we don't like and don't talk about, actually shows up and at great cost to himself, takes care of this man, takes him in, puts him up in an inn and says, whatever it costs to get him well, put it on my tab. I'll pay the price for him. We have opportunities like that all around us. It might not look that devastating, but opportunities like that all around us. There's people in this church family right now who need food or who need clothing right here, right now. There's people who need financial help right here, right now. There's people who just need another job opportunity, man. Like, can you help me figure out another way to make ends meet? Man, we have been the recipients in my home, in my home, 
of all manner of love from people, sacrificial love from people. I told a story at Friday night, uh, last time I was here, but we had a daughter that, that passed away a little over 10 years ago due to long-term illness. And, and one of the things we experienced during that time was like, folks would just stop and drop off toilet paper because they knew my wife and I didn't have time to go to the store. We're taking care of our daughter. They would drop food and gift cards off to say, hey, don't worry about cooking today. Don't worry about trying to figure out what you're going to do about that. I had people show up walk in my house, say hello, walk up the stairs, grab my laundry, and walk out the front door without saying another word because they knew that it was hard for us to get everything done that needed to be done that day. We have folks at the end of her life who gave to cover her funeral costs because I was in ministry and we could not afford it at the time. And we didn't have life insurance for her because she had long-term illness. The people of God showed up for us. I've known churches. I've known churches. I, I coach inner city church planters and train inner city church planters. And I've known churches in, in those places who haven't been able to make ends meet for their church budget. And I've known churches who said, you know what? Don't worry about it. We're going to adopt you because your ministry in that really hard place is critical for life in the kingdom of God. We're behind you. And they give to help them meet budget every single year. That's what love looks like, sacrificial and self-giving love looks like in the kingdom of God, not just in word or talk, but in deed and in truth. But family, can I tell you something? I was so convicted this week as I was thinking about this because, man, we live with such perceived boundaries around what love is and about who we're responsible to love. We don't mind loving people in our tribe. We don't mind loving people who look like us or people who are our favorites. We don't mind loving in ways that are comfortable to us. It's a sacrificial part that we just don't like. We don't generally act until we're asked. And even when someone does act, we, we make excuses or we debate about the worthiness of somebody to receive our self-sacrifice. And if you fall outside of those lines, you get the pass by the other side syndrome and just keep on moving because it's someone else's problem, not yours. We act like we don't see at times because, man, I know that it costs to much, but family cannot just awaken you to something else. Can I invite you to consider something else, family? Can you imagine what kind of jam you would be in if Jesus would have looked at you and said, I'm just going to wait on them to ask me to save them? You never would have. You never would have, and you would be dead in your sins. Can you imagine what, what jam you would have been in if he had said, man, I don't know if they're deserving of my sacrifice right here, right now. Can you imagine what would have happened if he debated about what it was going to cost him and decided that you were not worth it? But you know how undeserving you were. You know that you didn't want his salvation. You know that the only reason that you know the grace of God right now is because Jesus looked at you in your sin and in your rebellion. He looked at you and he said, he's worth it. She's worth it. And he laid down his life for us. And that, when you know that, you know the love of God. And so your work, when you know that kind of love, is to put on the mind of Christ and to do what Paul says, put on the mind of Christ, to have the heart of Christ, to ask God to give you the eyes of Christ, and then ask him to give you the courage and self-sacrifice to give of yourself for the benefit of others. And you say, well, what might that look like, Pastor? Well, go home and Google today the one another statements in the New Testament. Just type one another statements of the New Testament, and it will give you a list of ways to love your brothers and sisters so long that I think we would never get tired or bored of ways to sacrifice and love one another for the benefit of them. Family, love 
is the foundation and the fundamental practice of the Christian life. But I, I got to move in and give you some assurance now, uh, because if you're like me, you don't often love like you should, right? You don't often love like you should. John's been talking about our assurance that we have to know that we're walking as children of, of, of the light. And he does something in the last section of the text in, in verses uh, 19 to 24 that, that I, I didn't read them, but I just want to point them out at, at, before I, I'm in my seat. John does something really helpful, pastorally speaking, because uh, for whatever reason, maybe you're not like me, but for whatever reason in my life, like I know my sin and I know when I've, when I've crossed lines, I know that. And I'm like, man, God, I can't believe I did that. And I start beating myself up. And then even when I repent, I'm like, well, was it true enough? Was it right? Did, I, did it go deep enough? And I'm, I'm just overly scrupulous with my soul. My heart begins to condemn me a little bit and say, man, I don't know if you, you know the grace of God anymore at times key. Well, I, I think John knows that about us. I think John knows that about us because in, in, in verse 19, he says, by this we can know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. He says, by love for one another, but even where that's not true and where our hearts begin to condemn us, John says, hey, God's word is greater than the word in your hearts. It's greater than the condemning word of your heart every time that you see yourself failing, family. There is assurance in verse 20. He says, whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts, and it is God's judgment that is right. And you know what his judgment of you is in Christ Jesus? Romans 8.1 says that there's therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. John's already told us that even if you do find that you've been living in lovelessness, you find sin, you confess your sins, and God is faithful and just to forgive your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And it's not because you're worth it. It's because he's pledged his love to you in the body and blood of the Lord Jesus. Family, it's God's word over us that sets us free, and it sets us free to love. That word of no condemnation gives us faith to run into his presence and pray and know that our prayers are heard and know that our loving Father will answer them, John tells us in this section of text. But he, he points us in the last couple of verses to the activity of Jesus and the Spirit, and I'll leave you with this, and I'm, I'm, I'm in my seat. He says we can walk in assurance of love because we've trusted Jesus. We've, we've done God's work. He said, we, you've kept the command to love and believe in the Lord Jesus. Amen and amen. And he says, you've trusted that he is the one who's able to cleanse you from unrighteousness. It was that demonstration of love, family, that serves as your great assurance that you know the love of God forever. Out of that love, he allowed himself to be indicted and tried and convicted on charges that you deserved. And out of that love, he allowed himself to be crucified like a common, common criminal in the way that you deserved. And in that love, he decided to bear the wrath of God that you deserve for your sins so that you could be declared righteous in the presence of God. In his love for you, he went to battle on that cross with sin so that you could be liberated from the power and presence of sin forever in his presence. In his love, he went down to the grave and did battle with death so that you would not have to live in lifelong slavery to sin and death anymore. And we can walk in assurance of that because of the presence of the Spirit of God in us, reminding us of what's true about God, reminding us that Jesus is Lord, and reminding us of God's love that's been poured in our hearts through the presence of the Spirit. It is the presence of the Spirit abiding in us that allows us to say that Jesus is Lord. And it is the presence of the Spirit of God in us that produces and motivates love in us because he reminds us constantly that we love because God has first loved us, family. Love is the foundation. 
and the fundamental practice of the Christian life. And maybe you're here today and you have not tasted and seen that that love is good yet. Man, I plead with you today, like Jesus' love is good and it never changes and it is a love that will never ever let you go. Would you put your faith in him today? Would you quit trying to try to be a loving person and just accept the love of the one person whose love matters now and into eternity and whose love you will never ever lose now and into eternity? Would you repent of your sin and trust him for salvation today? Maybe you're here today and, and you're saying like, hey, Key, I haven't been loving. Hey, good news for you today. Confess that sin, repent, turn away from it and say, hey, God, give me another chance to love my brother, love my sister. Maybe you're here today and you're cross with somebody that's in the room right now. We're about to come and have communion here in a little bit. Pastor Andrew's gonna, gonna come up and lead us. Listen, if that's you today, repent. Go make peace today. Walk in love and come to the table and celebrate the sacrifice of the Lord Jesus for us today, family. If that's you, if any of that is you, would you respond in faith and obedience to the word God has spoken to us today? Love is the foundation and the fundamental practice of the Christian life, and it is more than a feeling. Would you pray with me? So, Father, we give you thanks for your word. And I, I give you thanks this morning because you, you promised that when your word goes forth, it never returns void. It always accomplishes everything that you send it forth to do. And so, God, would you help us to know your love this morning? Would you help us to walk in your love this morning? Would you remind those who've forgotten of your deep love, of your love this morning? Would you remind those who are walking in self-condemnation and lack of assurance right now of your deep love? Pour it out on us in this place. And as we come taste bread, and as we come taste this cup, would you help us yet again to taste and see that you are good and that your love is true. We thank you, Lord Jesus, for your death on our behalf. We thank you, Spirit of God, for reminding us of what true. We thank you, Father, for setting your affection on us before the foundation of the world. So triune God, come and remind us of that today, I ask in Jesus' name. Amen. Why don't you stand to your feet this morning? I was thinking while Brian was preaching, such a good message, I was thinking that when we come and hear the word of the Lord over us. What we don't do is like the point of a message is not to go check, 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 check. I'm good. And we pat ourselves on the back. <laughs> but the point of a message is that we go, oh, like somehow we're exposed and we say, Lord, I need you. And if a message leads us to that place, Lord, I need you, then we're ready for mercy and grace to come pouring in. And so I'm going to ask you to take the hand of the person next to you. And we're just going to pray together as a church family here this morning. And so we say, Holy Spirit, come into our lives together as a church family. John says that the only reason that we can love is because you first loved us. And so I'm praying here and now that wherever the first love of God has not dropped down into our spirits and transformed our lives, well, I'm praying that it would. I'm asking that as we're joined together as the body of Christ this morning, hand in hand, that your love by the power of your spirit would race across here, that all of the walls would fall down. I'm praying that bitterness would be chased out of this place. I'm praying that unforgiveness would be chased out of this place. I'm asking that reconciliation would take place in this house. And I'm asking that that generous love of God would so dominate our hearts that we would race out of this house this morning, eager to give the love of God away. Grant that, I pray. 
And I also wanna to say to you, church family, I'm so, while you're holding the hand of the person next to you, I am so, I was so aware of this while Brian was preaching, that there are some of you here this morning that have never opened your lives. You've never opened your heart to the love of God. You've never said yes to Jesus. And this is a great day for you. <laughs> and so family, I'm gonna ask you to say these words after me. And if that's you this morning, like if you're in this place, I'm gonna have you repeat these words as well. And this is just a simple prayer for you to begin to open your heart to Jesus. Say, Jesus, say it with me, family. Say, Jesus, I need you. Life is hard without you. And I know that well. And so I'm turning my faith towards you this morning. And I'm putting my trust in you this morning. Take my life and give me yours. And now I open my heart to receive your love. And here and now, family, if you prayed that prayer for the first time, I would just want you to take a moment and just picture Jesus coming in with love and grace and mercy and affection. If you were the only person, he was coming for you. He would have done it for you. His life is yours now. And so, Lord, as we prepare our hearts for the table, you can let go of the hand of the person next to you. We say, come and meet us here at the table. The body broken and the blood poured out. We're saying, take this bread and take this cup, Lord Jesus, and make this a meeting ground with you, a place where we find ourselves by the Spirit pulled again into the vortex of your love. Granted, we're asking in the name of the Father and the Son and the Spirit and all God's people said, Amen. Our servers are down front to serve communion. If you're new with us this morning, communion is the meal of God for the people of God. The ushers will dismiss you row by row. Come and take your elements back to your seat and I'll lead us to the table in just a moment.